of the Brexit Party. This week on Q&A, U.S. Army veteran Eileen Rivers. She discusses her book, Beyond the Call, Three Women on the Front Lines in Afghanistan. Eileen Rivers, why did you call your book Beyond the Call? Uh, Well, first I want to say thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Um, So I called it Beyond the Call because I really wanted to emphasize that these women... I feature three different women who are members of female engagement teams, and they really went just beyond the call of their regular duties to, to help women in Afghanistan, to help the fight in Afghanistan. You know, these women were taking on responsibilities that nobody expected them to at the beginning of this war. Um, so really it was about them literally going beyond the call of duty to try to help women in Afghanistan and try to further the mission. Your dedication, I'm going to read it, to Bessie Coleman, right. Willa Brown, right. and all the other groundbreaking females, past and present, mm-hmm. whose stories are too rarely told. Right. What's yes. behind that? Well, there are so many women that I would have loved to have gone more in depth in this book on their stories. There are so many women who have served in the military since the beginning of the foundation of this country. In fact, I feature Uh, Deborah Sampson, who I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, who served in the Revolutionary War. A lot of people don't know about her. Um, But, you know, Bessie Coleman and Willa Brown are also women who never get talked about. Um, These were African-American women who um, could fly planes and weren't given the opportunity to. So even when Caucasian women, for example, were allowed to fly finally, there were so many African-American women who weren't. And I didn't get to tell a lot of their story in this. There's a chronology at the beginning where I talk about their stories a little bit. Um, but they really represent the unsung heroes of the women of the military. And women certainly were. African-American women, all women, were unsung heroes of the military. And I wanted to make sure I mentioned them in a big way. Now, Deborah Sampson isn't her real name. Well, Deborah Sampson, that is her real name. But Not, she... Yeah, I mean, that is her real correct. name. Correct. Deborah Sampson it's is her real opposite. name. But you're on to something there, which is that when she enlisted in the military... Yeah. She enlisted under a male moniker. She disguised herself as a man. She, she went by the name of Robert Shirtliff, and that was after she tried a couple of different times with other male names and failed. She didn't quite have the shtick down of how to be a male. Um, and then she disguised herself as Robert Shirtliff, and she tested whether she could carry off that disguise by actually going to visit her mother as a male. She knocked on the door, and she thought, if I can fool my mom, then I'm ready to enlist. And it worked. And so she went, she enlisted in the Army, um, and she served in the Revolutionary War. And for a long time, nobody knew that she was a woman. They were actually following her into battle. Um, she was faster than a lot of the men. She was a better shot than a lot of the men. And it was only after she was shot, she was taken to a hospital. She stole some medicine. She stole um, a couple of really sort of old rudimentary medical devices. She was going to try to dig this bullet out of her thigh. She was shot in the leg herself in order to avoid being examined, because she knew that once she was examined, that would be it. Um, She tried to dig this bullet out. She ended up passing out. Somebody found her in the field, took her back to the hospital, and then the doctor examined her uh, while she was under and realized that she was a woman, reported her back to her command, and her command thought, man, you're so good at this, you can't possibly be a woman. She went back dressed in her uniform, 
And he said, I don't believe you. I want you to go change into what you would wear as a woman and prove to me that you're a woman because you're just too good at this. You can't be a woman. She came back in a dress um, with her hair kind of done the way she would normally wear it. And he said, my gosh, you actually are a female. And normally that would have meant a court-martial for her. That was illegal to do. Um, she would have been jailed. But her commanding officer said, you've been so brilliant as a soldier, I can't possibly jail you. I'm going to just give you an honorable discharge and let you kind of go on with your life. And that's what she did. President Clinton said the following on September the 3rd, 1996. It had an impact on you. Let's watch this. Earlier today, I ordered American forces to strike Iraq. Our missiles sent the following message to Saddam Hussein. When you abuse your own people or threaten your neighbors, you must pay a price. 1993. 96. <laughs> I'm not doing very well. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of dates to remember. 1996, yeah. yeah. Okay, what, what impact did that have on Well, that actually sent me and a lot of other uh, troops on these sort of uh, intrinsic actions to Kuwait. Um, so I went to Kuwait as an Arabic linguist. I was an Arabic linguist for four years. Um, that strike that he was talking about was in retaliation for uh, a lot of the things that Iraq was doing to Kurds in the north. They needed intelligence troops on the ground. I was one of the intelligence troops that went to Kuwait. Um, and so my job as an Arabic linguist was to sort of sit at a desk, as I described this uh, in the very beginning of the book, sit with headphones on and try to listen to potential uh, terrorist networks, potential enemy forces, and try to pick up on anything that might be a clue as to what they could be planning. Um, And so I did that in Kuwait, along with a few other Arabic linguists. Um, And then we collected that information, sent it on to analysts. And then that definitely influenced what infantry units may or may not do on the ground. When did you serve in the military and what service? I was in the Army. Uh, I was in from 1995 to 1999. Why? Why? Well, that's a big question. Um, You know, my family has a history of military service. Uh, My dad was in the Army as well. He served in Vietnam. Uh, He was a high-ranking non-commissioned officer. He served for over 20 years. Uh, I had another brother who joined the Army. My sister was in the Navy. My other brother was in the Navy, so we had a sort of Army-Navy kind of rivalry going on in our family. Army's better. Um, And so, you know, I thought I knew also a lot of Arabic linguists and linguists in general. Um, I grew up near the Fort Meade area, NSA is right there. And I thought, you know, it might be cool to try out linguistics. So I went in with the intention of either being a journalist in the military or being a linguist. And so I was kind of pushed toward linguistics, um, which was definitely a high priority when I went in. They needed Arabic linguists. Um, And so, you know, I took uh, the ASVAB test, equivalent to an IQ test. They said, you scored high enough to do anything you want to. I said, great, I'd like to take the language test. Um, And the military picked Arabic for me, actually. So you don't get to pick the language you do. You take the language test, and then however you score on that is the language they pick for you. And I ended up getting Arabic. Where did you serve during those four years? So I was stationed at Fort Gordon, and then I went on three different missions. I went on the mission to Kuwait that I mentioned. um, And then I also did a little bit of Spanish. Um, That wasn't something that I went into the military with the intent of doing, They just sort of heard through the grapevine that I could speak Spanish, and they thought, oh, well, we're going to send you over here, too, because we need people doing Spanish stuff. So I ended up uh, TDYing, in in addition to TDYing to Kuwait, I did a temporary duty in Ecuador and Honduras on Spanish missions. What tripped the idea of doing this book? Well, I'm an editor at USA Today, uh, and when I got out of the military, a lot of what I was seeing in terms of coverage 
were what I call the extremes, right? So there was extreme coverage on one side where where we were hearing a lot about, you know, soldiers behaving badly. So, you know, people going into villages and, you know, shooting up families or releasing top secret documents. Um, and then the other side of that was, well, the war isn't working. <laughs> so the vast middle of, you know, what I knew to be really hardworking soldiers and airmen and, you know, Navy corpsmen, um, people who were in the Marines just wasn't being shown a lot. And so my thought was, why don't we get uh, people who are on the ground actually serving to tell us what's happening? I mean, this is a war where everybody's a photographer, everybody's a videographer, right? All you have to do is pull your cell phone out of your pocket and document what you're seeing. And so I put out a call to action. This was a while ago when uh, the Gannett Company um, actually owned the Military Times newspapers. And so I put out a call to action in all of those newspapers saying, if you're on the ground in Afghanistan and Iraq at the time, send me your photos. Send me any videos that you're taking of what you're seeing. Um, and we'll publish them on USA Today. And so I got a flood of photos. Um, and there was a photo of a woman. And as a woman, I really uh, was surprised that I hadn't thought more about the female presence in Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't think really anybody was thinking about that because it wasn't really being covered that much. Um, And so I immediately called her up and said, what are you doing on the ground in in Afghanistan? What is that like for you? And she told me about something called female engagement teams, which I hadn't heard of. And I thought, what are female, what is that all about? She seemed shocked that I hadn't heard about that. Um, And she said, yeah, we're on the ground and it's women helping women. We're helping women in Afghanistan advance. And in that sense, we're helping the war effort. And I thought, I've got to learn more about this. She referred me to other women. I got referrals to even more women. I called up the Marine Corps. I called up the the Army headquarters and said, can you put me in contact with any women who have done this program? And that started the book. I started hearing more and more stories. I found three women who could tell their stories incredibly well. And that's who I wrote about. You do start, though, with another woman. Yes, I do. I wanted to... That, that line of women helping women really hit me. And I wanted to find a woman, and I call her Jamila in the book, on the ground in Afghanistan who was benefiting from this work. Is that not her name? It's not. And I didn't want to put her life in any more danger. Um, people who are familiar with the book will know that she's been threatened by the Taliban. Um, she works at this women's center that's been bombed by the Taliban multiple times. One time when she was actually in the women's center. Um, thank goodness she survived that. Um, even though she was injured. So I didn't want to put her you know, name out there um, and put her in any more danger than she's already in. She's an Afghan. She's an Afghan female, and she's on the ground in Afghanistan still working. She's a feminist, um, which is seems counterintuitive, right, for, for a woman in Afghanistan to stand up and say, I'm a feminist and I'm working against the Taliban actively for women's rights, but that's what she's doing every single day. What's the story of her husband? So her husband was killed in front of her and her children. Um, There was a a transition period um, where her husband worked for the old Soviet system. um, And at that time, the Mujahideen was really trying to push out anybody who worked for that system. Um, So her and her husband immediately, they were in in Kabul. Um, They were living in um, a neighborhood called Makroya neighborhood, which was a very affluent neighborhood for people who worked for the Soviet government. Um, and they realized that they had to flee. They had to run from the Mujahideen because they were coming in really trying to push anybody out. So they fled from there. 
Um, they fled to several different provinces in Afghanistan. They ended up landing in a, in a province that actually her husband had grown up in. They were surrounded by family. They thought they would be safe. Um, and Mujahideen fighters came in again. Um, and they really wanted to target anybody who had worked under that old Soviet system. Um, they captured her husband. She was her and her children. She had uh, four children. They were outside of their home. Um, and they just stood there in disbelief and watched them behead her husband right in front of them. And she, you know, I talked to her. When I talked to her about it, she was, you know, still emotional about it. It happened several years ago. Her youngest at the time was two, and her youngest now is about 15 or 16. Um, and even still, that many years, you know, this many years later, she's, you know, for obvious reasons, very emotional about it. And she says, one of my biggest regrets is not carrying my children into the house. And she doesn't understand why she didn't. Um, and, of course, she was in shock. I mean, nobody can, can blame her for that. But, yeah, that's what happened to her husband. Who pays her now? So her position is a government-run position. Um, but she often feels as if the government's not quite doing everything they can to give her what she needs to keep the Women's Center going. I mean, there's this kind of strange dichotomy in Afghanistan where they realize that the rights of women are important, but they're not necessarily always doing what they can to push the rights of women forward. So, yeah, it's a government position. The government pays her salary, but yet she still has to get grants to keep the Women's Center going, and she feels like she is simultaneously fighting against government forces that don't necessarily want women to move forward and fighting against the Taliban that very openly and obviously don't want women to move forward. So what does a female engagement team do, and how many are in it? So female engagement teams are teams of two to three women. They attach to to all-male combat teams, or at least what used to be all-male combat teams, not anymore. Um, But when female engagement teams were at their height, they attached to these male combat units, and they went out on missions. So um, female engagement teams really began as what was called Team Linus. And there was this realization that with all-male infantry units going into villages trying to treat women the same way they treated men to collect intelligence, they were breaching these cultural barriers. So they were going in and frisking men, interrogating men, they assumed in the beginning that they could do the same thing with women. So they would try to frisk them, they would try to interrogate them, and people in Afghanistan, and especially these highly Muslim villages, were not you know, okay with that. Um, so they realized that they couldn't do that. They developed these female engagement teams so that women could go in and do that. So that was the first layer of that mission. Women would attach to combat units, frisk Afghan women, collect intelligence, um, and they started collecting things that had previously gone missing. The Taliban kind of realized that male soldiers weren't going to search females, so they started planting things on their women. Um, Female engagement team women came in and started collecting those things. So that was one layer of the mission. Um, And then the other other layer of the mission, which I kind of think is a much more important layer, is this aspect of nation building and of that real sort of idea of women helping women. They would help women get microloans. It would help to train women who wanted to be uh, police officers, for example, to frisk other women so that when these teams left, Afghan women could fill those roles. So they were really, they had this sort of dual and very complicated at times mission. Did you spend any time in Afghanistan? I did not. I always say I ran up a really big phone bill to write this book. So I called Afghanistan frequently. I called to talk to Jamila. I also called to speak to other women on the ground whose information I used on background. Um, I called to speak to um, the p- police chief in Zabul province. 
um, who gave me some incredibly good information. You wrote the military's hypocritical approach to female recruits. Mm-hmm. Dash, it's a big lie. Yeah. Has haunted the institutions for more than a century. Yes. Um, so that kind of goes back to Deborah <laughs> Sampson, right? So she was this woman who wanted really hard to fulfill this mission, this personal desire that she had to be in the military, and she did it. And there's a pattern of women being rejected post-Deborah Sampson in every major war in America. Um, But then the military kind of pulls them in to fill in the blanks when they need it. Um, So, for example, women who were nurses during World War I. Well, the military needed nurses. There were women who could fill those roles. Those roles were contract roles in the beginning. Those women were not recognized as full soldiers, although they did the same work. Um, it took forever for the military to finally say, okay, you've done this work, we're going to take female nurses in the military. Um, the same thing could be seen with women who could fly. So women were flying missions stateside during World War II to free up men to fly overseas. And those women actually expected, after those missions were done, to be taken into the regular uh, military, and they actually weren't. Um, it wasn't until a couple of decades later when they realized they'd need women again that they said, okay, well, now since we need you again and you've proven yourself, we'll go ahead and let you be a part of the military, even though we kind of misled you and made you think we were going to do that before. We had no intention of doing it. How were you treated in the military? Um, you know, I definitely felt some discrimination as a female, Um I can remember I was talking earlier about uh, some of those missions I did in Central America and South America. Uh, And on one of them specifically, um, there were about three women on this mission and uh, maybe about half a dozen to ten men. We were all, you know, sleeping in the same tents. We were all working in the same tents. There was an officer who said he's going to come up and kind of visit us. Incredibly hot. It was so hot, in fact, that our thermometer broke out there. (laughs) And we were very excited that this officer was coming. We were all getting ready. He got there, looked at the three women, and one of the first things he said was, the women should not be here. They should not be on this mission. And I thought, well, you know, he's been here for all of five minutes, and suddenly he knows that the women aren't capable or shouldn't be on this mission. And, of course, we were the only linguists out there. So if they didn't have us, they didn't have a mission. He didn't realize that. Um, And so we had to stay. But there were certainly moments like that. Um, Definitely wasn't as bad as or as frequent as women who had it before. Um, But I can certainly remember some moments like that where um, there was still this kind of throwback idea that women just weren't as good. Here's one of the women that you write about in the book, Sergeant Sheena Adams. Yes. Some video so we can see what she looks like and what she sounds like. I think that the female engagement team, whether it be in Afghanistan, on the Mew, anywhere, um, we have a capability that is key to any mission success. Um, We might not necessarily be going into a place that's culturally sensitive as Afghanistan, but we are still able to adjust and help because our our communication skills, the relationships that we can build, males are often more comfortable talking to a female than they are talking to another male. So even if it is an open area, they are still comfortable talking to us and that being brought in can make a mission successful. So I think that they can be successful if they are used, definitely. How did you find her and give us some background on her? So she um, is this sort of simultaneous great success story for female engagement and kind of tragic uh, 
Kevlar ceiling story. She definitely hit the Kevlar ceiling and had to eventually get out of the Marines. What's that mean? Um, so the Kevlar ceiling and also the brass ceiling is sort of the equivalent for women of the glass ceiling in the civilian world. Um, you know, in the military, often when women went on these combat missions, and she was definitely a woman that desired greatly to be in combat. She was a Marine. She'd always thought as a kid that she wanted to be a combat fighter. Um, she, you know, fought hard to get on a female engagement team. She became a female engagement team leader. There she was talking about how female engagement teams can be used in other countries aside from Afghanistan, where there may be similar tensions for women, there may be similar problems for women, but perhaps we don't have the same military presence on the ground. Um, she was really fighting for female engagement teams to continue when there was this threat of them ending. But before any of that happened, she went to Afghanistan, she served on a FET, and then she came back and she couldn't get promoted. Um, part of that was because... While she was on the ground in Afghanistan, she wasn't around her regular command. Um, And part of what you need to get promoted is an evaluation. And your command is the one that gives you the evaluation. Well, she wasn't doing her regular job as a helicopter mechanic. She wasn't around the command for them to give her an evaluation. So she was sort of caught in this horrible situation where she did all this incredible stuff in combat and got back and she got ribbons, she got awards, she got recognized. But when it really came to the recognition that would move her up, she didn't quite get it. Um, she, her and her husband also decided to start a family, so she took maternity leave. While she was on maternity leave, the packet that she submitted to go before the promotions board somehow got lost. Um, so she really did meet with this unfortunate situation where that combat duty, in a way, served against her and did not allow her to get promoted. She hit that Kevlar ceiling, and she eventually had to leave the Marine Corps. But she really fought hard to keep the FET mission going. What's the background on her family? She grew up in Hawaii. Um, I don't know that she has a huge history of military service in her family. Um, I think being in the Marine Corps was really important to her. She's married. Her husband was also a Marine, and she now has uh, three kids. And were they in the Marine Corps at the same time? They were. They did overlap a little bit, and I think her husband is actually still in. So... Major Maria Rodriguez. Yes. Who was she? Um, so Maria Rodriguez was an incredibly hardcore woman who uh, was a provost marshal. Um, so she was stationed in Alaska, actually, when she uh, got shipped to Afghanistan. Um, and her story is really interesting in that um, she struggled to really find Afghan women to train um, as police officers. Um, so, you know, she was an incredibly determined woman who wanted to move up the officer ranks as a female as much as she possibly could. Very ambitious that way. Um, In a way, her ambition really cost her personal life. She was divorced twice. Um, And when she got to Afghanistan, one of her biggest missions was, I want to find these Afghan women and train them to be police officers. Um, There were six Afghan women um, on the provincial governor's base. It took her several weeks. First of all, she was going to meetings every Sunday with the provincial governor. She was not allowed to speak as a woman. She was, uh, they sat her incredibly far away from the other men in the room. She was the only woman there. Eventually, she got around to getting permission through her commanding officer. She would talk in these meetings by writing notes, and then she would slip the note to her commanding officer and see if he could bring up what she had a question about. Finally, she was able to find out where these women were. Turns out they were in the same building just upstairs, and they were being sequestered away. They were in a building that had, I think, one window with bars on it and blackout curtains. Nobody 
in the outside world knew they were there. They were not being trained. They were not working. So part of what she did was really give these women who were risking their lives to be there a voice and give them a job. You explain the life of Marie, um, Maria, mm-hmm. excuse me, Rodriguez, mm-hmm. and her second husband and their children right. and all that. Give us mm-hmm. some of that background. So, um, as I said, she was married twice, divorced twice. Um, her second husband had also been in the military, um, and he ended up getting out of the military and being a contractor. Um, she has a child with special needs. She has a daughter with special needs. Um, and part of what she kept coming up against was, as a military spouse, she was thoroughly expected to kind of sit back and watch her husband's ambition, both of her husband's ambitions. Um, but she never really felt like she was expected to soar and rise through her own ambition. So there was a time when her husband was really deploying a lot as a civilian contractor. Um, she really said to him, you know, look, if you're going to be here with us and we're going to have a family or you're going to keep going. And she, she said, I decided to let him go because I knew his ambitions were strong and I would want to be able to fill, fulfill my own ambitions. And so she did. Um, they got divorced. Um, even while she was in Afghanistan, he was watching the children. So several years later, um, she started deploying a little bit more. He kind of took a step back and said, okay, I understand you want your career. Even though we're divorced, I'm going to support you in that. Um, so he kind of really became her rock. After she got back from Afghanistan, they had this kind of arrangement that worked for them. They were still divorced, but they were living together, mutually kind of co-parenting their kids. And he ended up passing away. He was sick. Um, She described the day as one where she'd kind of been out with the kids. She came home. The house was kind of quiet, which was unusual. Um, Their arrangement was that he kind of slept in the basement. She slept upstairs. The middle floor was kind of mutual territory. She went down to the basement and found his body there. Um, Very tragically, he had died. Um, and so she kind of had to pick up the pieces um, and still try to nurture her military career and move up alone with two kids. Um, and that's kind of where we pick her story up after she gets back to the United States. Wait, <clears throat> this is just a couple of sentences mm-hmm. about one of her children, the daughter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Her daughter needed special care. She was legally blind, mm-hmm. had scoliosis, chronic lung disease, HDHD, and a moderate developmental disability. Right. How do you juggle all this? You've got a, you're living in a divorce situation. Right. You're in Afghanistan, and you've got a daughter that needs a lot of help. Right. Um, and I think it was Chris, her ex-husband, who they were still co-parenting together, who really had an influential role in helping to make it work. But at the same time, the stresses of motherhood were, you know, not lost on her. How could they be? She often had to make that decision. Um, And she talks about that fact. She said, you know, when I had kids, I understood the fact that the military would still require me to deploy. And as a mom, I knew I had to step up and take that responsibility. And she said, as a commanding officer, I often sent mothers, you know, overseas. I sent them on temporary duty. I sent them into war. And she said, when my time came and I was a mom, I certainly wasn't going to shirk that responsibility. She loved the military and loved her country and loved serving it that much. But she also felt a lot of guilt. You know, there were times when 
you know, she describes herself in Afghanistan calling up her husband and crying um, over Skype, and he would comfort her. Um, she said, or her ex-husband, I should say, she said that he always knew the right thing to say to make her feel better and to make her feel like her decisions were okay. Um, so, yeah, I think that she struggled, as a lot of moms do who work, with a lot of guilt. How do I balance it all? How do I be a mom and still nurture my career in a way that's satisfying? And, you know, I think she, throughout her career, tried to find that middle ground. Where is she now? She's in Florida now. She is out of the military. Um, she's a teacher. Uh, and she has her own business on the side. Is that her real name? Yes. Everybody else's name is their real name, except for Jamila. And how long did she stay in the military? Um, she was in the military for almost 20 years. So she had been an ROTC before she actually uh, joined full service. So, yeah, I think it was almost 20 years. Now, she's a major or was a major. Correct. Hunter, and the earlier woman we saw, uh, Sheena Adams, was a sergeant. Correct. One's an officer, one's an enlisted person. Right. And but, Joanna Smoke also was uh, an officer. I'll go back to that in just a second. Okay, I just sure. wanted to ask you this question. Mm-hmm. What's the difference to the way women are treated in the service if they are enlisted right. or officer? So I think a lot of the struggles are the same. I talked about that Kevlar ceiling versus the brass ceiling. The Kevlar ceiling is a metaphor for what happens to enlisted women. And the brass ceiling is a metaphor for what happens to uh, women who are officers. Um, and I think that in terms of moving up, both women certainly hit those ceilings and have a hard time moving up. I mean, um, you know, even when it came to, you know, after women were allowed to, to enter all combat roles, um, part of what took and is taking that so long to fulfill is that they're waiting to fill a lot of those high-ranking female officer roles um, or roles with female officers so that they can bring in enlisted women and make sure that those enlisted women have someone to talk to if they do run into problems. But I think in terms of moving up in both uh, both levels, it's, it's very difficult for women. Another quote from you. Okay. From your book. <laughs> Military hypocrisy has gotten worse as the roles of women have expanded beyond operating rooms mm-hmm. and onto battlefields. Explain. Right. So I think it's gotten worse in that it's gotten much more dangerous and women are putting their lives on the line much more, or at least were, in battlefield roles. That kind of goes back to me talking about women being nurses. So for a long time, that was one of the few accepted things women could do and kind of get closer to the front lines um, and be accepted as, you know, full-fledged members of the military. Um, And then the creep began again to pull women from those nursing roles into, you know, actual combat without recognizing fully that they were in these combat roles. And so that led to a lot of, um, you know, silly restrictive rules. So, for example, um, in Afghanistan, women were not allowed to drive off of forward operating bases by themselves. They had to be accompanied by a male soldier. What's a forward operating base? So forward operating base are, are, are basically these, these bases where companies reside um, you know, while they're in Afghanistan, and they'll drive from there onto, you know, into more dangerous combat missions. So that's supposed to be a sort of semi-safe area. Um, anything can happen, though. Forward operating bases have definitely been attacked. Um, but women can't drive off of them by themselves without, you know, without a male accompanying them. Um, and when women did go to these combat missions, because of these restrictive rules, they also had to be driven back to the forward operating base after they were out there for so many days which put women in even more danger, right? Because obviously the more you move through Afghanistan, you're exposing yourself to potential IEDs, you're exposing yourself to potential guerrilla attacks. So women were, because of these restrictive rules, in many ways put in more danger than men, but 
yet they still had to adhere to these rules that were pretending that they weren't in combat. They were putting themselves in even more danger. What was the difference between the Marines' attitude toward the female engagement teams Mm -hmm. and the Army? Or in the Navy. Throw the Navy in there, too. So um, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, female engagement teams really started in the Army. Right, they started with what was called Team Lioness in, in Iraq. What year was that? Uh, that was around 2004. Um, and then, you know, this idea that women could complete these missions eventually spread to the Marine Corps. Um, one experience that Sheena Adams shared with me was that there was a time when she felt like there were men who were kind of trying to break her and test her and see if women could actually hack it. So she got out to this fob that was in this somewhat rural area in Afghanistan. And, and, you know, there were Marines who were like, well, we're going to test your strength. We're going to see if you can really hang. And they took her and her female engagement team on this grueling two-hour ruck march that she said was faster than any ruck march that she had ever been on. What's a ruck march? Further. Um, so you have your battle gear, your, your rucksack, which is probably about 40 pounds. And in that, you carry everything you could possibly need on a mission. Uh, and then you also have your weapon with you. Um, and so they had this, you know, really heavy gear. They had their weapon, and they were carrying it on this road march. Um, and she pulled her women aside and said, no matter what happens, don't you dare start crying, and you better keep up. Because she's like, I have a feeling they're going to try to test us. And that's exactly what happened, and her women kept up, you know, step for step. Um, and I, I think that in terms of deploying women, you know, the Army and the Marines definitely use female engagement teams in very much the same way. Um, I'm not sure that the attitudes were all that different either. I mean, there were certainly men on the ground who initially did not want women there and didn't think women could hack it. I don't want to paint all men as thinking that way because there were a lot of men who welcomed women and who understood that, you know, these women were going to be able to help with the mission and be able to get that information men couldn't. But, you know, for the men on the ground, I think invariably... The attitudes changed after they worked with these women for a couple of days and saw what they were actually capable of and saw the information that they could gather that the men certainly couldn't. So the last of the four total women you write about, Johanna Smoke, who is she? Um, So Captain Johanna Smoke uh, was a woman who um, actually worked with Jamila, the woman in Afghanistan that I was mentioning that, that 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 I write about off the top of the book. Um, she described herself um, as as Jamila's chief of staff. She said, whatever Jamila needed to complete her mission, that's what I was there to provide. Um, and so she developed this incredibly close and strong relationship with her. They went on shuras together. So shuras are these meetings that they would hold with women to impart information about voting rights, for example. They often registered women to vote who had never voted before in their lives. Um, you know, she helped Jamila to get a grant to keep the Women's Center going because she realized that the Afghan government wasn't providing her with the money she needed. Um, so she said, whatever Jamila needed as this incredibly strong feminist woman, that's what I would provide. And that became a really big and influential part of her FET mission. And where was she from and how long was she in the service? And the, was she in the Marines or Army? She was in the Army. She's actually still in. She got promoted. She's a major now. She also got married. Um, so she's Major Joanna Hip instead of Captain Joanna Smoke. Um, and her backstory is also interesting because she was married to a man who was also in the military. Um, she did not want to go to Afghanistan initially. She was actually supposed to go special operations. That was something that her father had done in Vietnam. 
She very much admired her father. She wanted to do the same thing. Her husband also decided to go special ops too. They had been to Iraq together before uh, she deployed to Afghanistan. So her and her husband both deployed to Iraq. Um, and she got caught up in this program called WIDA, Women in the Army, where you know it was becoming more and more obvious that A, female engagement teams were working, that women were on the ground in combat anyway, and the Pentagon was making moves to say, okay, we're going to start opening some combat roles to women. And then this lawsuit happened in 2012, and they said, okay, we're going to open even more combat roles to women. But the military, of course, likes to test everything to death before they actually do it. And so the WIDA program was, was really meant to test how women would fare being the only woman within an all-male combat unit in um, a position of authority. And so that was what Joanna Smoke, now HIP, was meant to test. Um, and she was kind of put off by that fact. She said uh, to me when I asked her about it, where was the military when I was in Iraq? Like, that was a mission that I did on the ground. I encountered combat there. Nobody seemed to care. Um, it feels like too much, but too late. I want to um, interrupt just to show sure. you some video of the Secretary of Defense, Ashton Carter, during mm-hmm. the Obama years. This is in January of 2016. Okay. And I think you suggested, uh, like this woman, they're a little bit ticked off about uh, okay. what he says. As long as they qualify and meet the standards women will now be able to contribute to our mission in ways they could not before. They'll be allowed to drive tanks, fire mortars, and lead infantry soldiers into combat. They'll be able to serve as Army Rangers and Green Berets, Navy SEALs, Marine Corps Infantry, Air Force Parajumpers, and everything else that was previously open only to men. And even more importantly, our military will be better able to harness the skills and perspectives that talented women have to offer. When did women actually get into combat? Um, how far back do you want to go? Are we just talking about Afghanistan or are we talking about... Well, no, I mean, he, he's suggesting yeah. that now women can get into combat and get in all Right. Well, I was going to make a comment about that. I mean, part of two things that he said, women can now get into combat. And then he also said, as long as they can carry out the mission, as long as they can do the same thing men were doing. Well, they had been doing the same thing men were doing. I mean, women were doing that in Desert Storm. Um, there were women who were who were going out in vehicles, getting exposed to IEDs, getting blown up during Desert Storm, even before Iraq and Afghanistan. So, you know, this idea that they had to prove themselves, which is what Joanna was talking about, they had to somehow now prove themselves and prove that they could do all this stuff that they'd been doing all along is something that really was off-putting to her. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Ashton Carter... Uh, eventually said all of these roles will be open to women. Um, And then in, you know, the following years in 2017, that's when we really see some progress. As I said before, it was a little bit slow. Um, Before women were going to be fully into these infantry units, they wanted to fill those officer ranks with women um, so that enlisted women, if there were issues that they ran into, could have somebody up the chain of command to go talk to. Um, So it's still a slow process. Um, you know, part of what I talked to Joanna recently, and she said part of what we need to do is now get the numbers up, right? Women have proven on the ground in Afghanistan that they can do all these things. Um, but now we, you know, we're so used to a force that's only about 18% women. We're so used to that now that we need to sort of um, get women in those ranks, get women in those positions to not only um, show everyone that they can do it, but to kind of change the mindset of men who are still, as Ashton Carter implied in that statement, 
thinking that women can't qualify to do this, right? Women who graduated from Army Ranger School also proved that they were qualified. They met the same qualifications as the men to graduate, and they did it. As we talk today, 2,419 Americans have been killed in Afghanistan. Mm. What do these women think of the Afghan war, and has it been worth it to lose that many people, and how many of those were women? Um, so uh, I'll, I'll tackle that, the first part of that question, which is what do these women, what do these women think about um, what we've been doing in Afghanistan for the past 17 years? Um, you know, part of the problem, and this is in general in Afghanistan, not just with female engagement teams, but it certainly trickles down to them, is that units aren't there long enough to really make a permanent difference. So, um, and this was reflected in what men said that I interviewed and in what women said, which is that um, it's almost like we're taking two steps forward but then three steps back. The units there on the ground, they finally build trust with these communities. They finally start to train um, Afghan soldiers. And then as soon as they feel like they're making a little bit of progress, they have to leave. The next unit comes in and they have to kind of start all over again. Right, because that unit now needs to build trust with those communities. They're entirely new faces. Um, a lot of Afghan communities, with good reason, are not necessarily immediately trusting of American soldiers. Um, so it's hard to make progress on the ground when units feel like they're not there long enough to do the mission. Um, one of the things that Joanna Smoke uh, said to me when I interviewed her, this is near the end of the book, is that she didn't want to leave when her unit was told they had to leave. She said that her command didn't want to leave. They felt like they were just beginning to make progress, and then they had to leave the country. And she said, now we're seeing the after effects of that, right? So this, this idea that because the Taliban was pushed out of Kabul, that meant that somehow we won something, wasn't actually accurate. Um, the Taliban is still a very strong force throughout a lot of the country. Um, and they've been able to pick up steam because of that really bad, what Joanna Smoke described as a really bad strategy. What's the difference between the Mujahideen mm-hmm. and the Taliban, who are they? And, and, those, and when, did, when did they both start mm-hmm. or exist? Um, so the Taliban uh, came into power and into existence in Afghanistan after the Mujahideen. The Mujahideen was, at one point, um, we actually helped the Mujahideen, the United States actually helped the Mujahideen, um, supplied weapons for this group that ended up becoming this terrorist uh, network that we were not necessarily anticipating. Um, so the Mujahideen is actually one of the terrorist forces that um, Jamila, as I was describing in the beginning, had to flee from. Um, they ended up uh, in the in the earlier 90s really trying to take control of all of Afghanistan. Um, the Taliban came in and they were trying to wrestle control from the Mujahideen. There are several other terrorist factions in Afghanistan that we really don't report on and really don't necessarily know about. It's not just the Taliban and the Mujahideen. Um, there are at least a dozen other terrorist organizations in Afghanistan that are fighting for power. Um, I, when I interviewed the, um, the uh, police chief in Zabul province, he was telling me, uh, and I asked him, why are there places where you don't send females? So I was really trying to get at you know, these females who are on the police force or trained and you're not sending them everywhere. And he said, you know, there are terrorist factions that are so strong in this country that nobody ever talks about. We don't send the men there either. It's way too dangerous. There are parts of Afghanistan where we don't send anybody. And I think 
that's also something that Joanna Smoke mentioned, is that the more our presence is unsteady and unstable, the more we're giving this window of opportunity, not just for the Taliban, but for a lot of other terrorist networks to kind of rise up, continue to fight, and continue trying to wrestle power from each other. You went to uh, Monterey to go to school. I did. Uh, lang- uh, defense language school. Um, right. You learned Arabic. Right. Do the women that run these uh, female engagement teams have to speak Arabic? Um, they learn a little bit of the language and country. So in Afghanistan, it's mainly Dari and Pashtu. Um, they learned a little bit, but they actually have translators that come in. Um, usually they hire contractors to translate. Um, so, yeah, when I went to uh, DLI, I went there with the specific mission of learning Afghanistan to be an intelligence collector. Um, when these female engagement teams are trained, they're trained in very rudimentary aspects of the language. So, for example, if they're, you know, searching somebody and they want to say, you know, please, um, you know, stand still or hello or introduce themselves, they can say really basic stuff. But they have translators that they hire as contractors to do, you know, the, 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 the big sort of translations. You, you discuss this in the book, and I, I did want to ask you about this, but you talk about mm-hmm. the burqas, mm-hmm. the full covered head, the right. whole body of head the women. Toe. Uh, has there ever been an occasion where they have had suicide uh, bombs under the burqa and have people died mm. because of that? Because you talk about the reluctance of the women to be inspected uh, by Americans over there. Right. So have there been times when women have had that underneath? Yeah. Um, I haven't heard of that. I've heard of men disguising themselves as women in burqas okay. and mm. having things underneath, having bombs strapped to them. Um, and they were doing that, you know, mainly... And they, I, I guess there, there are instances after the female engagement team started where they still try to do it. But they were trying to disguise themselves to avoid being um, inspected because it was that women didn't want to be inspected by men, not that they didn't want to be inspected at all. So if a woman approached another woman, that was fine. But if a man approached them, that's against all custom and Muslim tradition. So you did all this by phone? Yeah, I did a lot of it by phone. I met women face-to-face to interview them, but I never went to Afghanistan. How did you find them? How did you... Yeah. I mean, and did you reject some ideas until you found the four women that you wrote about? Right. So I talked to dozens of women. I wrote about these three ones specifically because they were the most open. Um, they were able to tell their stories really well. I mean, the idea is that you want to find somebody who can tell their story well, and sometimes in... Journalism, that can be a little bit hard to to find, that kind of sweet spot. Um, And a lot of women, I still kept their interviews and kind of kept them on on background. They definitely sort of informed um, me just generally to feel like I was a little bit more authoritative and had sort of a a wide-ranging idea of what the experiences were. Um, But, you know, I found some women through word of mouth. I would talk to a woman and she'd say, well, if you really want to know about this, you should call Maria Rodriguez. Who's Maria Rodriguez? Well, she's somebody who was the provost marshal and she headed up military police in Afghanistan. So then I would call military headquarters um, and I would say, I'm looking for Maria Rodriguez. How can I find her? Um, where is she stationed? Do you know where she is now? It was a lot of calling PR, you know, the PR arm of military headquarters, them directing me to a particular military base me calling the PR arm there, and then finding Maria Rodriguez or whoever it is I was looking for. Um, So, you know, a lot of journalism is what it is. We've got some video of of people you mentioned in the book, but uh, the important thing is to be able to see them and hear them talk. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, this goes back to 2004, Team Lioness. Ah, Specialist yes. Shannon Morgan. Okay. And Staff Sergeant Randy Ruthig. Okay. Uh, let, mm-hmm. Let's watch this just to get a flavor of the way they talk and, and uh, you can respond. And all of a sudden I looked and everybody was gone. I was the only one in the street. There's insurgents all around me firing at me. And I'm like, son of a bitch. You know, I didn't know what to do. And I'm like, Shannon! We were trying to find a place to provide cover and visibility. And we end up going into a building because almost every Iraqi building, you can get up onto the roof. Right, like... Going like this, like trying to get my attention, get over here, something, run. Because in Army, you tap back. You tap every man back, and you let them know you're moving. These bastards didn't say nothing to me, just left me there. So I ran for my damn life and caught back up with my firing team. When I got there, I kicked the squad leader right in the nuts. So that was from a documentary. Yes. I actually called the one of the women who directed the documentary and interviewed her uh, because I was trying to get in touch with another woman who wasn't shown in the documentary, but I did call... Um, the woman who was their commander, who uh, I talked to her, she was actually on the ground in Afghanistan when I called her and also emailed her to get a little bit of the story behind how Team Linus started. And then I called one of their colleagues, the two women that you showed. There was another woman named Anastasia Breeslow who served with them and was among the first women to uh, participate as a Linus member. Um, And she was telling me about the Battle of El Ramadi. And that was really one of the first major skirmishes it was a humongous battle, um, and that was one of the first major skirmishes that Team Linus was involved in, that any female engagement team was involved in. I want to make sure that we give the name that Megan McLaughlin, M- M- McLaughlin okay, and Daria Summers are the ones that uh, directed that uh, documentary. Right. Yes, yes. Um, what about your background? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Severn, Maryland, Anne Arundel County, Maryland. Right close by here. Right, not very far. Where did you go to school? Well, let's see. I went to Meade Senior High School, which is on Fort Meade, Maryland. As I said, my my dad was military. Um, And then I went to University of Maryland College Park. Um, I kind of had this, I always call it this sort of strange um, circular story to finishing my J school degree. But I went to the University of Maryland um, for two and a half years, kind of got a little antsy, had heard about this linguist thing, thought I might give it a try, and that's when I enlisted in the military. I took the, as I said, the ASVAB test, took the language test. They assigned me Arabic. I did four years. Um, And then I kind of had this, um, I was at a crossroads where I thought, well, I could kind of, I guess sort of fork in the road. I could go back to Maryland and finish that, or I could try to do something else with linguistics. Um, I decided to take a year and work as a journalist. Because I knew I'd been a linguist and I loved that. Um, I also kind of knew I wanted to work in journalism to make sure I still loved that. So I'm a kind of planet ahead kind of person. So while I was still in the military, I started writing for the base newspaper. And I developed all these clips. And I thought, I'm going to take these to a local newspaper and get in at the newspaper. So I took those to a local, a small weekly newspaper. I got in there. I worked as a journalist. I ended up winning... This is before I finished my journalism degree. I won an award for investigative journalism. I did some investigative pieces on slumlords. I did an investigative piece on the local uh, government. Um, I kind of was a general assignment reporter where you cover a little bit of everything, and I loved it. And so I thought, yeah, I want to go finish my journalism degree. 
So I re-enrolled at the University of Maryland, came back to this area, was working full-time at the Washington Post, started as an editorial aide, and then became a copy editor. Um, I was doing that, the editorial aide part, while I was writing freelance for every section of the paper that would let me write, and finishing my bachelor's degree in journalism. And then after that, uh, the paper sent me uh, to a fellowship, what's called the Maynard Program, where I learned how to be an editor. Um, And then I came back, and I was a copy editor at the Post. Uh, I was there for a total of eight years before I became uh, an editor at USA Today. What is the interactive reporting project that Mm -hmm. you say in the book uh, led to this book? So that was the one I was describing earlier where I was like, I want to collect all these photos. I want to collect your experiences on the ground. Can people still see that? You know, USA Today has a tendency to change platforms (laughs) a lot. We're one of the leaders in innovation when it comes to online journalism. So unfortunately, they can't. I still have all the photos. Um, we, we got uh, over 100 photos from soldiers, um, airmen, Navy corpsmen on the ground. Um, but unfortunately, the platform has changed so frequently that those are no longer available online. So what did you think of doing this book? Um, you know, it was, a, it was a long haul. I started, I was looking back at some old emails. I started uh, reaching out to one of the women I mentioned in the book. Uh, in the beginning of the book, I actually don't uh, tell her story throughout, but Liz Carlin, the one who said it was Women Helping Women, the one whose photo I got in that project in 2011. Um, so it was a, it was a long haul. Um, it, was a, it was definitely a challenge, but it was a very fulfilling challenge. One of the things that I thought was very useful in the book mm-hmm. is the beginning and the chrono- chronological right, uh, the account of women How long did that take you to do, and where did you go to find all that? Um, That was actually one of the quickest things I did did in the book. Um, uh, You know, there are several um, online online resources and, um, you know, several resources that I I called upon to complete that. But I definitely wanted to make sure that I included something um, that was pretty thorough and that really gave this in-depth account of, what contributions women have made, um, especially when it comes to combat, especially when it comes to moving missions forward throughout the history of this country. And so that's why in the beginning, I definitely go back and do a little bit of storytelling with Deborah Sampson um, to show that women from the beginning have been capable. Um, and then you fast forward to the, the clippy show of Ashton Carter asking if women are capable. I mean, you can see in that chronology that we have been capable all along. And that's part of what I wanted to show. Did you ever want to go into combat? No, (laughs) I didn't. Um, You know, that wasn't something that was a a goal and a mission for me. Um, I definitely, just like it's not a goal and a mission for all men, right? I mean, there were men that I served with in military intelligence who loved what they did. And I certainly loved that aspect of what I did. Um, You know, I am kind of, I guess, by nature, somebody who likes to research and gather information. And that's exactly what military intelligence allowed me to do, to to, to research what people were doing and talking about on the ground and to gather that information and to be a a resource and a provider of intelligence for people who do do that incredibly important combat mission, both men and women. So what did you find out from the women you talked to as to why they want to dress up and fatigues and... Yeah. combat boots and put a rucksack on and have a their rifle in their hands and go out and get 
crawl through the mud. What did I find about why they want to do it? Yeah, what is it that's driving them to do that? I mean, I guess you could ask the same question of men, right? What is it that drives men to want to do... Well, I really am looking for the difference. I don't... And I, I guess I'm saying I don't know that there is one. I mean, I think that there are some people on a very human level who... um you know, want to have that frontline experience and want to, you know, go out there and, you know, and prove to themselves that they can do that tough mission and get it done. I think that's what inspires a lot of men to want to do it, right? They want to show that they can, um, you know, go out there and achieve um, and, and in, in very challenging circumstances. And I think a lot of these ambitious women want to do the exact same thing for the exact same reasons. Who is the woman on the cover of your book? That is Sheena Adams. And, and why did you pick that for the cover? Um, I think that's an incredible photo. Thank you to Rita Leisner, who actually took that photo. Rita was part of um, an experimental project on the ground where she followed Sheena and the other women in that FET unit. And they were kind of trying to figure out whether it was possible to cover a war through social media. Um, and so she took all of these incredible photos. I include some of them in the book as well. Um, and they blasted them out everywhere on social media that they possibly could um, to try to see whether that made a difference in their coverage, whether that could expand the coverage, whether they could reach more people. Um, and so I think, first and foremost, it's an incredible photo. It's a very strong photo. Um, and I think if any, all of these rep- women represent this idea of beyond the call, um, of going above and beyond the call of duty. And I think part of, part of what Sheena Adams' story also shows us is, again, that sort of catch-22 situation women find themselves in, where they go and do this incredible service and then come back and the military didn't quite know what to do with them or how to recognize that service in a way that can move them forward. Um, and so she certainly represents that on the front of the book. Well, we'll take another look at the cover. and it's, The book is called Beyond the Call, Three Women on the Front Lines in Afghanistan. And... The author is our guest, Eileen Rivers. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed speaking to you. transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qa.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts.